morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 29. If you want to turn there, you should be pretty close. All right. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the very word of God. We now come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The passage before us today follows other exhortations and warnings that we got to study the past few weeks, and I wish sometimes we had more time to go over them in more detail. But we heard Jesus contrast the, the broad and the narrow gates, the false and true prophets, bad and good trees, and false and true disciples. We rejoiced even last week in the assurance of our destiny. We were warned about the danger we faced. We were exhorted to have wise discernment toward prophets and disciples. As we live in the new kingdom where the Lord's prayer is the model, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it is imperative that the citizens of the kingdom be able to discern well and wisely between these contrasting dichotomies and live on the side of righteousness rather than lawlessness. There is only one divine law, the law of Christ, which is the law of love, life, and peace. We either live according to it, outwardly reflecting a real inward regeneration, or we would be lawless, because every other law except the law of Christ is a lie. But righteousness and lawlessness cannot both prevail at the end. There will come a time to separate between them once and for all. And so we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives the final exhortation and the last contrast. There is a storm coming and the foundation will be put to the test. When the wind blows and the flood rolls, only a firm foundation can stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The logic of this saying of Jesus is quite straightforward. It is his final point of the sermon and follows all the previous teaching we've studied. The main point of the passage is a warning and the exhortation where everyone, the word pas, P-A-S, everyone literally means everyone. Everyone will face danger. Everyone who hears the words of Jesus will face the coming storm. There will be one of two outcomes. The first one is either is doing and the second is not doing. Wisdom bids the hearer do and survive 
the coming storm. Foolishness bids the hearer not do and succumb to what is coming. The word tells us that great will be the fall. It matters not what is projected externally if the foundation be destroyed. Believers must dig deep, drill deep, and lay a foundation of faith and obedience that cannot be swayed by the blowing wind or the rushing flood. Our sermon today will cover three aspects of today's passage. The firm foundation, practical wisdom, and divine authority. First, the firm foundation. Now, whenever we look for a house, we might think of a location, school district, neighborhood, architecture, yard, resale value, etc., etc. But the foundation is the most important part of a house. No matter all the other features, a structure has to withstand the natural elements, be they rain, wind, flood, or earthquakes. Now, the people hearing the words of Jesus understood this image. The hilly land around the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee, could be very deceiving. During the dry months, the earth would look solid and firm. But the region was also subject to heavy rain, which would quickly change the consistency of the earth and lead to flooding of what is called wadis, or the valleys or ravines that were interspersed between those hills. The risk of rushing water was very high for any structure that was not built correctly. If a house was built without digging deep, deep enough to lay a foundation on solid rock, when storms rise, when wind and rain bat a house, the earth under it would become shifting sand, and the whole house would be in danger of being swept away, and not only the house, but all those in it. If you ever get the chance to travel to that region, try to find a structure whose foundations are being laid and see the work that goes into it. The house I grew up in was on the side of a steep hill. It had foundations that went several feet into the ground to help sustain it from floods, earthquakes, and shifting earth. We had a a neighbor build a house next door, and I remember my, my own father warning him of digging deeper because of the nature of the land, and he did not. And one night we woke up to this huge rumbling like an earthquake, And we went out in the street in the dark, only to see that the the whole house had shifted several feet and was on the verge of actually falling into into the the valley underneath. And and they had to do an emergent work overnight and the next couple days to actually um, stabilize that structure so that it doesn't fall into, into 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 the valley. Now, when I moved to Oklahoma, I was aghast at seeing foundations being laid straight on the face of the land. I still don't get it to this day. No wonder we got used to a bit of settling. But the risk Jesus is talking about is not a mere crack in drywall or an inch of settling. It is complete uprooting and utter destruction. If the foundation is not firm, it is very easy to deconstruct. If faith is not solid, it is very easy to shatter. If a ship's hull is not watertight, it is very easy to take in water and sink. A small crack can devastate a soft foundation. 
this passage tells us that everyone stands at risk. You heard the words that Ashley read to us today. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew on both houses. Everyone stands at risk. Believers specifically have been warned by Jesus and the apostles that trials will come and persecution should be expected. Yet even before persecution takes place, on this side of eternity, the effects of the fall are that bad things happen to all people. The evils of this fallen world happen every day and do not differentiate between believers and unbelievers. Accidents, wars, illnesses, a broken bone, a diagnosis, a flood, an earthquake, a pain in the middle of the night, and so much more. But not all people respond in the same manner because the foundation of a person's worldview system differ from one to another. It is, after all, worldview that directs our thoughts and actions at every point, becoming acutely clearer during times of duress. And this passage contrasts between foundations for systems of faith, both true and false, because both have to deal with the calamity. There are many worldviews out there. Some seek salvation by separating themselves from pain and calamity. Some insist that if you eat the right foods, you can face anything. Others preach that you must have done something wrong to receive evil. If we look in a cursory way at the book of Job, we will, the book will expose to us some of these thoughts that are not new. The thoughts we face today are not very new. They just might put on a different dress or a different outward appearance, but these thoughts have been there since the garden, since the fall. You add to these thoughts nowadays that it is very easy for information to travel across the globe. Just like foods travel around and they become subject to fusion, worldviews do the same thing and get some mixing. But a firm foundation should not be adulterated by the addition of thoughts that can act like sand or termites where only solid reinforced concrete must be laid. So where is our foundation? Some trust maybe in insurance policies, others in banking accounts, others in a political party or in military power and so on and so forth. The psalmist says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This should be the wise foundation of our faith so that we can withstand everything and anything that comes against us and continue to do the works he has prepared for us. Notice again that it is not simply hearing that is wise. It is doing. God has already laid the foundation for us to build upon. If we look at Isaiah chapter 28... The Lord speaking to his people after issuing a warning, he says, Behold, I am the one who, laid, who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a chief cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in it will not be in haste, will not be destroyed. And just like in Jesus' time, there were many, many people among the hearers who did not believe we would fool ourselves today to think that those who hear the word of God, even every Sunday, are all wise and that they are doing his works. And they are leading their lives according 
to his purposes. And I want to move us here to practical wisdom. See, the intention of these, of these sayings of Jesus is not to scare the faithful. It is to revive the dormant. It is to strengthen the weak. It is to give hope to the weary. Not all who hear do. Not all who seem on the inside are not actually outsiders. To be in the audience of the king is no guarantee to be in the kingdom. To be physically in a church is no guarantee to be in Christ. I think John Piper says something like, to be in a, in a garage does not mean you're a car, just like being at a McDonald's does not make you a burger. <laughs> Simply being in a church is not a guarantee to be a Christian. A warning must be given first before practical wisdom. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warns us about the last days and hear this. Understand this, Paul speaking to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Rain, flood, water, wind. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pause here for a second. Last week's, last week's passage um, said something about we will recognize them by their fruits, good fruits and bad fruits. Paul is talking about bad fruit here. He continues, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. How many people have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power? So Paul give, gives us this example and summarizes this in this, that many people, and the easiest thing about having the appearance of godliness is probably coming to church every week, but deny its power by how we live our lives. The logic of the passage is quite simple. Hear and do, hear and do not do. You hear and you do, you stand. You hear and you do not do, you fall. But the result is very complex. Storms are coming. The storm of this life and also that of the coming judgment. The Lord's day is a scary day. The evil of the current age will last for a while, but the day of the Lord will, will show us our destiny forever. The foundation will be tested. Appearance will be set aside. We will either stand firm or fall greatly. There will be either salvation or destruction, either life or death. The exhortation Jesus puts before us is clear. We're either wise and we do, or we're foolish and we do not do. There's another passage in Matthew chapter 25 about diversion. Those who hear the word will act foolishly or wisely. They both heard that the bridegroom is coming. Some were ready and entered the joy of the bridegroom, and some were not and were left in the outer darkness. They both heard. So we're either in or out, ready or not, the bridegroom is coming and will test every single one of us to our core. What is our foundation 
made of. At the center of the foundation is faith in Christ. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who despise it are foolish. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to be in the kingdom. Faith, if you will, is the cement without which no foundation can be laid. But cement alone is dust. Cement needs water to solidify it. And faith without works is dead. Obedience is essential to the foundation like water is essential to mix and solidify the cement to make it firm. Cement without water is just dust and is a soft foundation. And a foundation of dust cannot support a building. And Christ himself, as we just heard from Isaiah, is the chief cornerstone of the foundation, the center that holds everything together, that strengthens the whole structure. If you've ever traveled to the Middle East, or if you see pictures, in Middle Eastern constructions, there's a single stone at the top of an arched pillar that sits right in the middle that everything converges to, and it holds everything together. If you remove that single stone, the whole structure collapses. Take Jesus out of any faith, and everything falls apart. It is all dead. It will not lead to eternal life. There is no other way. The other element of foundation we just sang about, we also just said it in the, in the Apostles' Creed. It must be the koinonia, the fellowship of the believers. I believe in the communion of the saints. The church of the living God that is a pillar and buttress of truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, saves us by faith in the gospel into the church community. He tethers us together like rebar. We, brothers and sisters, think of it like iron sharpens iron. We are like iron rods who work together to strengthen the whole structure. You put it in the cement and it makes it even more solid. We become the assembly of faith over whom Jesus Christ is Lord. Can a foundation have one or two or three elements without a fourth? Let's think about it. Without Christ, all else is meaningless. Without faith, all else fails. Without obedience, we will only be known by our lack of proof, and we will not stand at the last day. And without church, we stand at a huge risk. And it's possibly the biggest false assurance of a, of a foundation that people have. How many people think they can be Christians but not part of a church? People think that they walk the walk or said a prayer at some point in time and they're done with it. And sometimes they ask, what else did Jesus do for me? Well, Jesus invited you to be part of the church because it is a buttress and pillar of the truth. We cannot love Jesus, the head, without loving the church, the body. We cannot live with the head without the body. Men, go tell your wife today, I love your head but not your body. See how far that takes you. <laughs> you cannot live with the head of your spouse 
without his or her body. And I'm going to give you this warning. You cannot live with the head, Jesus Christ, without the church. You may be saved, but Paul tells us, warns us in Corinthians that as if through fire, barely, you might be singed all the way to your bones. So what are practical ways to obey this exhortation? You might want to write them or you might want to look at them later on in the manuscript. Let's start with a few things. Reading the word, privately and corporately. He has given us the whole counsel of God. The revealed things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children after us that we may walk in them. So we need to read the word. Instead of following whatever online guru or teacher or, or excellent pastor who might talk to you about the next blood moon or the temple being rebuilt, follow the word of God and read it and embed your mind in it, listening to it spoken and sung if you can't read it. I will encourage you to find a group of singers called the Corner Room that puts the word of the ESV Bible verbatim to music and memorize it alongside them. Meditate on it day and night. Megan Smith gets the Corner Room recommendation and it's been great. <laughs> learning the truth, learning it so well that we can judge anything by it. Keeping it from false ideas and intrusive thoughts. In, in the history of missions, what destroyed a lot of the missions was the mixing of different ideas with the truth so that we can make sure it's palatable to people. I'm from the Middle East, and I'm going to say this, and it's going to be recorded. Isa is not Jesus Christ. The Quran says Isa is Jesus Christ. He is not. Christ died and rose again. Isa did not die and rose again. So stop teaching Middle Easterners how to preach the gospel to Muslim by telling them you should include Isa in your saying. Get off the soapbox here. <laughs> Third point, understand the unchanging character of God. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Study his character. When you hear someone telling you the God of the Old Testament is different from the, from the God of the New Testament, take that thought captive and show them the truth that God does not change, that his purpose was from eternity to redeem a people for himself. Study his attributes. Just a few of them, holiness, glory, might, love, kindness, gentleness. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Humility, joy, delight. He delights over his people. He exalts over them with a song. Compassion. He says, I am the Lord who will have compassion on you. Care. We just heard Pastor Ben praying. Our God cares. He is not aloof from us. He protects us. He sustains us. He is the shepherd standing at the door and keeping those wolves at bay. Fifth point, living as citizens of the kingdom. 
here and now, we live as new creation. We've been talking about this for the past two or three years. The kingdom is already here. Yes, it's not fully consummated, but it is already here. And we are part of the new kingdom. We are a new creation in Christ. Be subject to the king. Not have our allegiance divided by another. Getting rid of idols in our lives. Having no other master or masters. Forsaking the destruction, the destructive loves that Paul spoke about of self, money, power, and other things, and submitting our will to the will of God so that his will is done in our lives and on earth as it is in heaven. Submitting to the law of Christ, to one another in Christ, to love and good deeds, to mutual edification, to reminding one another of hope, to hospitality and care, to strengthening one another in the faith, to supporting of the foundation, support the foundation of another if it seems to be fledgling. If you see that building next door starting to shift a bit, you work overnight and extra hours to support that foundation from falling. And it might be even stronger than it was before because it has been tested and it will survive with your help and that of the Holy Spirit. Joyfully obeying the commands of God who saved us from disobedience into the freedom to obey him freely and willfully. I think we get it wrong when we look at the word of God and we see that God gave us the law to save us. He saved his people from exile in Israel, in, in Egypt, and then he gave them the law to obey it. And he saves us from our exile to sin in sin and brings us to freedom, and now he gives us the law of Christ to obey and walk in it. The law is not to hold your neck. It is to free you from the yoke that has been there so that you can walk freely now and joyfully in the way of our Lord. Forsaking pride and embracing humility. Pride prevents us from learning, from forgiving, from repenting, from growing, and from being sanctified. Showing Christ's righteousness in all that we do and think. Being above reproach, showing propriety, even the appearance of propriety is important. Let no one question what you do. How about praying? Praying daily, regularly, and incessantly. Praying privately and corporately. If something is not big enough to bring before the Lord in prayer, then it's not big enough to worry about. Which brings me to the next point, letting go of worry and anxiety. We saw this, in saw this in chapter six. Worry is unnecessary because our Father is the God of the universe. Worry is uncharacteristic of our faith in Jesus, who is the Lord of all. Worry is not wise because our future glory is guaranteed. Why worry then? Just pray. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Prioritizing the gospel over all other thoughts. We take them captive in the name of Jesus Christ rather than falling captive to them. Gospel living. We live credible gospel lives so that we reflect the character of him who loved us and gave himself for us. And so that the, word sees our, the world sees our lives and declares that there is a God in the land and God is among them. The world sees our hope 
and asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. Why are you different? Prioritizing the church and gospel community over all other assemblies. We're an Acts 29 church. I want us to be first an Acts 2 church. Having everything in common. I think we, we, risk, we risk shifting a lot in our foundation if we start forsaking the assembly together, even if it's teams or, um, or missional families, but especially Sunday and the prayer times we have together, because we have other things we prioritize. Another soapbox here, but there's so many things that we can do in this life, so many, so many activities, especially as a family or for our children, that we may just risk giving an account for before God at the end of the days. I think I've said this before, but, you know, I don't have children. My son is probably not going to become an Olympic swimmer and figure skater and baseball world champion and um, world champion of the United States. Um, <laughs> yeah. And a soccer World Cup winner. So maybe do one activity for your child or for my child, but not 17 during the week and you feel like you're serving them when you should be serving them the word of God. Play on word there. All right. Prioritizing the church and gospel community over all, the, all other assemblies. How about shepherding one another? Shepherding is not only the work of elders and pastors. How about knowing one another? Turning our brothers away from sin. Protecting our sisters from wolves. Leading one another toward maturity in Christ. Teaching each other the word of God. And how about this? Weeping with one another and also rejoicing together. Not just having to withhold certain emotions of pain because someone is joyful or withholding joy because someone else is suffering. How about you do both? Prioritizing the mission of the church, which is to raise mature disciples of Jesus who go on themselves to disciple others toward Christ. And then obeying the great commission, where the purpose is to make disciples of all nations, which also means planting churches that multiply and proclaim the glory of the Lord over the face of the earth. I think we might have mentioned this before, but do we ever wonder why God did not save us and take us directly to be with him? That would be great. You, you don't have to suffer in this life. But I think one of the main reasons, yes, sanctification is important, but I would much rather have glory immediately. But I think the main, one of the main reasons is that he can do all the work without us, yet he gives us the honor of being workers in his kingdom. And at the end, he will give us a reward for that, and he will tell us, well done, good and faithful servants. And if we don't take advantage of that, we're going to have to give an account. This list is not exhaustive. I don't want you to go home and say he forgot these two points here. It's not exhaustive. If you have more points, wonderful, share it with us. Go on Church Center and open up a new thread and start sharing how we can do this together, how we can have a firm foundation. But it's intended to help us learn practically what it means to hear and to do with wisdom. Hearing alone is not enough. In fact, only hearing is dangerous. 
those who hear must listen, and those who listen must do the will of Christ, which is the will of the Father who sent him. And this brings us to the third point, which is divine authority. Look at verses 28 with me. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as, as their scribes. If you still have the word in front of you, turn back to chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he went out on the mountain away from the crowd. His disciples came. He was teaching his disciples. At the end of the sermon, the crowds seems to have followed and listened to him. So more than the 12 disciples were there hearing the word. More people came to listen. And sometimes this is what happens. A pastor could be, what's the word, charismatic? Or maybe a church could be do some, doing something new and people will come. But hear this. They were astonished. The people were faced with a radical call to obey and to live differently in the world. When you come in here, you're going to have to respond to what you hear. They just listened to some of the most controversial declarations ever made. I don't know if you noticed, but we'll look at them in a second. Unlike their rabbis who derive their authority from Old Testament or from tradition, this teacher before them just anchored his authority in his own person. Look at verse 21. He was moving his logic throughout the sermon, maybe as he saw more people gathered. In verse 21, before that he was speaking about God, the Father, about how to live. In verse 7, he starts doing the difference, differentiation between good and bad trees, good and bad fruit, false and true disciples. In verse 21, he, he starts saying something radical. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. This is the first time he speaks of himself in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 22, on that day, when entering the kingdom of heaven, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And then he will say, I will declare to you, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And we read verses 24 and 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, or everyone who hears, hears these words of mine and does not do them. So he has moved the logic of the Sermon of the Mount and of obedience to himself. The sermon is not only a call to general obedience, it is a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord to the glory of God. His authority is in his own deity. The command is to obey him as the only path for salvation. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Is he worthy to be worshipped and obeyed? Yes, he is. Amen, Clyde. He is. Now, this declaration calls for a response. The people before him were astonished, but astonishment is not enough. We either accept it 
or we deny it. We either do his will or we don't. We either build on him or on another. I want to be very clear here. It's either or. Do or don't. You do fully or you don't. A woman is pregnant or is not. You cannot be partially pregnant. You either do or you don't. It is very clear. This is the word of God. He just said it. It's very simple. The result is very complex. You hear and you do. You hear and you don't. You, f you stand or you fall. So we either build on him or we're building on another. Simply being in awe of him is not enough. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis presents his famous trilemma. You may have heard it, but I'll read it for you. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The people listening to Jesus did not fail to see his authority. They were in awe of him. But astonishment alone is not enough. The wisdom that calls us to a firm foundation also bids us to obey him. Some of the listeners may have been the same people who later shouted, crucify him. Some of them may have moved on to follow other gurus, teachers, philosophers, or religions. Hearing alone is not enough. And astonishment alone is not enough. The right response is falling on our knees and calling him Lord and worshiping him as God. So brothers and sisters, we today must make a decision. Being at church no more makes one a Christian as being in the presence of the king makes one a citizen. False assurance serves no one. For those of us believers here today, and I hope that's most of us, if not all of us, the logic before us is clear. We cannot be mere hearers. We must be doers of the word who are anchored in the firm foundation of Jesus and display the character of Christ so that God is known and glorified. And for those of us who are not yet believers today or who may have false assurance, the warning is also clear. Hearing alone is not sufficient. You either do or you collapse entirely. Christ's words are not merely meant to scare you, which they should if you are not in Christ, but to jolt you toward wisdom and faith. Maybe the Holy Spirit today is doing a work in your heart to be ready for obedience, to come to the rock, the eternal rock, the solid rock, 
in whom you can stand firm in the face of all the storms of this life and the final judgment. You can fool everyone in this life, but we will not fool the Son of God. He is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy to be worshipped. And he is worthy to be obeyed. That's how we stand on the firm foundation. We don't only survive the storm, we thrive and we build up and enter eternal glory as good and faithful servants. So church, the call is clear before us today, to have a firm foundation and to build on it and go from faith to faith to the glory of God, our Father, who will one day tell us, well done, good and faithful servants, enter the joy of your master. And we, as the words of Luke 13 might tell him, what have we done? After we've done it all, we're just worthless servants. And would it, would it be that joy that God would want to give us the reward and want to say, no, we've done it all, and we just fight with him about receiving that reward? But the fight will end because we will enter into his glory, and he shall come and ma make his dwelling place among us once again, and every eye will see, and every knee will bow to the glory of God and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the God we have come to worship today. Let us pray. Our Father, we praise you that you have laid for us the chief cornerstone, a precious stone, one that does not fail, one that holds the whole thing together. And Father, I pray that these words at the end of this sermon would remind us of, of how blessed we are in Jesus Christ, of what it means to, to do works of righteousness that the world can look and see and glorify our Father who is in heaven, what it means to live and pray and fast and get rid of worry, but also seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all else will be given to us. And how will we not believe this promise when we have the assurance that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will not also with him graciously give us all things. So Father, I know that many of us might be weary today. Strengthen us, strengthen our foundation and use us as the body of Christ to, to strengthen one another. And for those who might be stronger than others, would you, O oh God, give humility so that we may encourage one another to love and good deeds so that all together would enter the glory of God and rejoice together in, in what you have ready for us. And I pray, O oh God, for any of us today who may not know Jesus Christ as Lord, would you, O oh God, work through your Holy Spirit in, our, in, in these hearts to embrace Jesus Christ, not only to be astonished, to be in awe, but to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to fall before him only for Christ to raise them up and build them on a firm foundation, the pillar and buttress of truth. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.